You are tired of average. You want more out of life. You know you're capable of something greater. This show will help you become resilient in your home, at work, and in your community. Welcome to the Resilient Humans Podcast with your host, Kevin Wood. Welcome back to the Resilient Humans Podcast. Uh, Awesome guest today. Uh, It's Mark Black. His family and I actually go way back. So uh, his mother was actually a mentor of mine when I was was a phys ed teacher. Uh, I went to university with his brother and Mark was recently one of my uh, public speaking coaches. I just did one of his courses and it's uh, actually helped me out on the podcast quite a bit and it's helped me gain some exposure in the public speaking world. So um, Mark's here. He's a heart and lung transplant uh, back in 2002. He's done four marathons, six half marathons, a Canadian transplant games, multi-medalist. He's also a public speaker, spoken to over 50, uh, 150,000 people. Uh, and has a book with over 4,000 copies sold called Live Life from the Heart. Uh, I believe he is the only person in the history of the world to run a marathon using somebody else's heart and lungs. So Mark Black, welcome to the Resilient Humans podcast. Thanks, Kevin. Pleasure to be here. This is fun. You you are what some would say is the definition of a resilient human. <laughs> you've pretty well, much, you. you've beat the odds. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I've been very, very fortunate. So can you tell us about what those odds were? Give us a, like, paint us a picture of what that was like back then. Sure. Yeah. I mean, so I'm going to go way back, but don't worry, this won't be a 30 minute explanation. (laughs) So I was, I was born with a congenital heart defect. I had open heart surgery at a day old, was medevaced from where I was born in Moncton, New Brunswick to Halifax, about three hours away. Uh, And doctors were able to, to fix the immediate problem there, but explain to the, my parents that. Um, I would need more surgeries, uh, which I did and, and had another one when I was a year old and then dealt with various consequences of congenital heart disease for 20 plus years. And then at 23 was told, okay, your kind of time has run out in terms of all of the non-surgical interventions that we can do your, you know, all the medications we can try, we've tried and your heart is still failing and you're only real chance at long-term survival is a heart and double lung transplant. So the problem with that is that while the surgery can, and in my case has made a dramatic positive impact, it's number one, incredibly difficult to get, uh, and incredibly risky and dangerous. And so, um, you know, we were given kind of 50, 50 odds that, I would survive even five years if I even got the transplant in the first place and less than 10% odds that I could even get on the transplant list. So, um, yeah, pretty fortunate to be sitting here talking to you right now. What was that like at 23 years old? Like I, I, I'm trying to think back of when I was 23, it would have been just coming out of university for myself, like whole world in front of me. And you were given some of the most devastating news I'm sure anybody could ever hear. So go, walk me through the mindset of what that was like back then. Cause I'm sure yeah. it's different than the mindset that you have today. hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Um, very similar probably to where you were. So I was, I had finished my bachelor of arts degree at Mount Allison. I was going to UNB in Fredericton to become a teacher. Like my parents, that was my plan. I had finished the first of a two year degree. And over the course of the last semester, 
Um, so from like February to May, I started to feel some symptoms. I was getting short of breath more easily. I was becoming more fatigued uh, more easily, but I was, you know, a 23 year old guy. And so I just said, oh, if I ignore my problems, they'll go away. Uh, <laughs> not a very good strategy, but that was right. my, mind, that was my but mindset. T- typical for a 23 year old male. Yeah. Especially when it comes to health <laughs> stuff, right? It's just like, yeah. ah, it's, it's no big deal. And I came home and I hadn't been home in about a month or so. And as soon as my mom saw me, she freaked out. She was like, oh my gosh, you lost a bunch of weight and you don't look good. And I brushed that off too, as you know, mom being overprotective, but I had lost almost a third of my body weight. So I, 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 I'm a small guy, but I was like 120 ish, um, before this. And I was like 86 pounds or something like that. I just, um, various symptoms from the congestive heart failure that I was experiencing caused fluid to build up in the abdominal cavity, which pushes against your stomach. So you're just, you're just not hungry. And so I wasn't eating. Um, and yeah, it was very frail, very weak. And my doctor saw me and said, like, you're going to the hospital now. And I ended up going from Moncton hospital by ambulance to the Halifax uh, transplant center and stayed there for a month while they just tried to stabilize me. Basically. I had no idea how sick I was. I just, you know, when it's incremental and slow, sometimes you don't notice um, the changes, positive and negative. Uh, and so I, I was kind of oblivious to just how bad it was. And they were able to stabilize me. And that's when they said, look, you've you've got two roads to choose from here. Option number one is get a transplant. Option number two is we'll try and keep you as comfortable and, and stable as we can for as long as we can. But that road is probably going to run out in a year to 18 months. So at, you know, 23, you're faced with you're dead in 18 months, or you try and get this transplant thing, which is risky and dangerous, but potentially provides you with, um, a longer, a longer lifespan. And so that seemed like a pretty obvious decision to me, even though the risks were, were there. And so we began the process of being listed for a transplant and it's a, it's a process. It was a six months sort of to get on the list and then a year of waiting on the list. And then, uh, and then I got the call in September of 2002 and, and the rest is history, so to speak. That, that time of waiting must've been excruciating just because you never know. And it's, I find it's the unknown that causes the most pain for anybody. Right. And it's, I don't know, that's not, I don't think a lot of people could, I guess, what, what was your mindset like during that time of uncertainty? Yeah, you nailed it. It's it's the not knowing, right? So I was listed in uh, October of 2001. So we had to, first of all, I had to move to Toronto to be put on the list because lungs are fragile. They don't last very long between donor recipients. So there was no time to like hang out in Moncton where I lived and get a transplant in Toronto the next day kind of thing. So we moved to Toronto, my dad and I, my love, my mom and my three brothers stayed home in Moncton. And you get there and they give you this beeper um, and they say, when this beeps, come in and have your transplant. So it's wow. in one sense, very simple, yeah, <laughs> but in another yeah. sense, incredibly complicated and, and, and difficult because as you say, you sit there and you wait for that thing to beep, knowing that it's literally life or death and you have zero control or influence over making that happen sooner rather than later. Right. You're just at the mercy of, of, of fate. And so 
learning to cope with that uncertainty and trying to figure out a way to live some semblance of normalcy while on that precipice of like always being ready um, was a very challenging thing to do. And, and I don't know that I ever really mastered it. I got a little better at it over time, but it's incredibly difficult. Yeah. One of the lessons that I think comes from this story is being able to let go of what you don't control. Yeah. How important is that for not just you, but for other people to, I guess, keep, keep in mind. It is the fun, the single most important thing to me for being resilient. I like, I teach a six part framework for resilience, but this is the, the, everything hinges on this. The better you get at letting go of the things you can't control, the more resilient you can be, the better, the more the happier you'll be, the more effective you will be. Like so many things get better when you, when you can do that. And again, it's not, it's easy to say it's hard to do, but it's a skill that you practice and get better at. I think one of the things that people fall into the trap of is believing that the ability to do that, the ability to just let go of things you can't control is somehow innate or personality type driven. In other words, like I'm just not that kind of person. And that's just not true. Like it might come more naturally to some than others, but it's a skill like anything else. And so if you practice, you can get better at it. And, and when you do that, you'll just, your stress level lowers, first of all, because all of a sudden there's less things to be worried about. You're able to put things in perspective more quickly. Um, and you're able to focus more of your time and your energy on the things you do control and influence because you're not wasting them on the things that you don't. And so, you know, I just think it's incredibly valuable. It's, and it's not a new, like every great idea. It's not a good, it's not a new idea. Um, Stoics in ancient Greece talked about this exact same thing, right? They're yep. just like, you know, that is back in the ages where like the gods control all of these external circumstances, <laughs> but, they, but the concept was still the same, right? It was like, okay, I can't change things like, the weather or storms or you know whatever it is so i'm gonna focus on what i can do and and trust that it'll either work out or it won't but i'm gonna know that i've done everything i can do and i'm not gonna waste my time trying to fix the things i can't fix so you mentioned that that's a skill and a practice what are what are some things that people can do to actually practice and hone in on that skill itself so I, sh I share with people a, a two tools in, in the programs that I do. The first one is I call the personal agency matrix, it's, but it's super simple. It's three interlocking circles, right? Three nested circles. And so the, in the middle of that circle, in the middle of that diagram, you are in complete control. So there are aspects of your day every day that you have complete control over. And we could list a bunch of those from what you wear to what you eat, to what time you get up in the morning the habits, the routines, the practices that you have every day, you control those, right? You get to decide. And a lot of people neglect those or don't think about what those are. And so they're not maximizing those, which is a quick win. So think about what are the things I control every day that maybe I can adjust to give me a head start, right? Do I need to go to bed a little earlier? Do I need to be more conscious with my nutrition? Do I need to get some exercise? Do I need to like, what are some things I can do? I need to journal or pray or meditate or like, and it's not that you need to do all of those things, right? I think a lot of times in personal development, we're like here's the 18 things you need to do to be more effective. Look, pick a couple of things, but can you make little tweaks 
that are going to give you a head start on a day so that when shit hits the fan, you're a little better prepared to, to deal with it. So that's the middle. And then the next circle out are, what are the things that I influence? So my thoughts, behavior, actions, mindset will influence these things. I'm not going to completely control the outcomes because there are other variables involved. Things like most of the things that happen at work, if you work in an office, for example, you're working with other people, you're working with clients, you're working with customers. So you don't control the outcomes of all those situations because there's other people involved. But does your behavior and thought pattern and interaction with people influence how those things turn out? Absolutely, it does. So I want to maximize that. And then on the outside are things that I don't control at all. And so if you go through, if you're having a stressful day or you're finding yourself, you know, kind of spinning mentally internally, as we all do sometimes, I find it super helpful to just sit down and I make a list. Like what's on my mind right now? What's keeping me up? What's causing me anxiety? What's frustrating me? And I just list it. First of all, just by listing it on paper, I always find there are less things than I perceive to be when it's just bouncing around in my head. So it's like, oh, is that all it is? <laughs> and then once I have those, like, okay, where do those fit on this diagram? Like, which of these do I completely control? Which of these things do I influence? Which of these things do I not control at all? If I don't control it, cross it off my list, try and put it aside. If I completely control it, like, let's address it right now. There are things that stress us out all the time that if we just would sit down and face it and deal with it, we could get it off our plate, but we don't. Taxes is one of my favorite examples. The statistics show that like, I don't know the numbers anymore, but it's the vast majority of people file their taxes like within 48 hours of the deadline or something like that. And it's this always this like stressful, you know, thing. Um, what if you did it a little sooner? Uh, and there's lots of things like that that just they weigh on us. And all we have to do is like buckle down and face it and do it. Um, and then the things we influence, obviously we just have to, to accept that we can't do it all. We can only do what we can do. And then we have to, you know, let the, let people or circumstance meet us halfway. But so that's, that's one tool. The other way I, I like to think about it is what I call shortening the gap. And so whenever we face a challenge, an obstacle, a situation that's difficult, there are two moments that are critical. The first one is when it happens and we have this reaction that's that I call, oh no, like, oh no, this thing happened that I wasn't anticipating, that I don't like, that isn't according to my plan. This is disrupting my life in some way. And then at some point down the road, we have another point where we go, okay, now what? So we have, oh no, and then we have now what? And the question is, how big is the gap between those, between those two events? Between, oh shit, this thing happened, and okay, now what am I gonna do about it? Sometimes that gap is two seconds, Someone cuts me off in traffic and I go, and then I let it go, hopefully. <laughs> Sometimes that gap can be months, right? And so it's, again, it's, I don't think we ever, look, if you're a Zen master and you can get to the place where nothing ever phases you ever, great. I think for most of us, that's unrealistic. But can we make that gap smaller so that when the person cuts us off in traffic, we do let it go in 10 seconds instead of carrying it with us and letting it make us angry for the next three hours? Can we learn to process and let go of those things quicker to save ourselves those resources time and energy to focus on the things that we control that's a great so i was going to ask you specifically what what can you do to close that gap and a lot of it's just putting things into perspective like we had somebody come into the gym the other day and they were i i put them in a different area of the gym that they normally go to and they started complaining i was like look 
if that's the hardest thing that happened to you today, you have a pretty damn good life. Yeah. Like that is nothing to complain about that. You're in a new area of the gym for, for this workout. Yeah. And they're like, Oh, I guess you're right. Right. Like, and sometimes it just takes that other person to, to show you that there's a new perspective on this anyway. hundred percent. Yeah. Gra- uh, perspective and, and, and gratitude are to me, the two tools that do that the best. Right. Cause exactly to your point, like most, you know, if you're listening to this right now and you live in, North America, for example, you're already like, you've already won the lottery, right? Like you're yeah, already, you're done. probably listening to this on a, a multi-thousand dollar phone or a laptop. <laughs> like you're good. You're, you're, you're pretty you're, good. You're so, yeah, you're doing so much better than you think you are. And, and, you know, we all need that reminder. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm hoping that's what these stories, like the ones that you're sharing are, are going to help with people. Like, look, you went through a, a heart and lung transplant. Uh, I didn't, I'm good. Right. Like that's not something I've ever had to worry about. And I hope I never have to worry about, but man, people go through a lot. I, I like following these. There's these guys on Instagram and TikTok. They, uh, they go around and they find either homeless or unfortunate people and then they help them out. And one guy was just looking for some help and he came up to this guy in a wheelchair and he ended up giving him a thousand dollars and the guy's like, no, no, I can't take it because I'm, I'm too fortunate enough. There's people worse than me. So he said, take that thousand dollars, go buy some food and water and donate it to a homeless shelter. Like that guy in the wheelchair could have easily said, oh my God, thank you so much. And just taken it and probably spent mm-hmm. it on something very functional and useful for him. But instead he said no and, and pushed it up to somebody, people that were hurting more than him. Yeah. So somebody in a wheelchair can do that, man. What? Like, I don't know. Yeah, you know, it's, about. It, yeah, it's it, so for I don't I'll I'll butcher it. I don't remember whose quote it is, but comparison kills contentment is one of the things that I try to remind myself all the time. Like, it, however, I think that it, that's absolutely true, but it applies to comparison up. In other words, I think most of the time, again, in our culture, when we're comparing, we're scrolling Instagram and we're comparing ourselves to the rock stars and the athletes and the whoever it is that we look up to that have more than us and we rarely seem to take the time to turn around and go but let me compare myself to how fortunate i am compared to all of these people on the other side of the equation and sometimes i think comparison in that regard is really helpful because it helps us to remember what we do have instead of what we wish we had that we don't uh and for most of us that's that's just we have a ton true we just don't we just don't appreciate it because we've always had it I, i've used this analogy oftentimes if we're, we're climbing a mountain literally climbing a mountain we're always focused on the peak that the, the top and we never spend the time to actually stop turn around and see how far we've come and we need that perspective oh my god look how far i've come and that's the analogy for life L- mm-hmm. look back sometimes don't live your life in the rearview mirror but take the opportunities to look back and see the progress that you've made you're not who you are from 5, 10, 15 years ago. You've, you're evolved. You're different. And you have to take that time sometimes to be able to appreciate that, that success, right? Uh, absolutely. People say, how, uh, people ask me, you know, how do you, how do you, so part of resilience to me is, is actually all of resilience to me is not about balancing back from adversity. I think that's like the common analogy that we're given. And that's flawed for a couple of reasons, namely because you can't go back. <laughs> you can only go forward. We don't have the opportunity to go back in time. 
Um, and the and the also the implication there is that we're going to somehow return to what we were, but like the river changes all the time. We're not, we aren't who we were. Um, if you're the same person you were last year, then you're, you're not living. So instead it's to me, it's about evolving through challenge and diversity, right? Like how can I not just get through this, but how can I leverage this experience to make me better? And to your point, you, we all are who we are precisely because of what we've been through. And so when you're facing the next thing, whatever that thing is, and you're intimidated by it or scared by it or whatever it is, and we all, we all are sometimes, I think it's really helpful to, to remind yourself what you've already been through. Because nine times out of 10, 99 times out of 100, whatever it is, whatever you're facing is not the hardest thing you've ever faced, which means you've been through something more difficult before this. And therefore that should give you the confidence to say, if I can do that, then I can do this. Like I can handle whatever this next thing is. Cause look at what I've already done. Uh, most of us discount uh, the past experiences and the things we've already been through. We just kind of like, oh, okay, well that's done. And we forget about it. How does that play into doing hard things and not just doing hard things, but doing hard things on purpose? We do, we do hard things on purpose. So I, I say do hard things because that builds your resilient muscle, right? So much like going to the gym and, and working out and lifting weights creates micro tears. So there's stress there, right? You're stressing your body. Um, so it's difficult, but ultimately in the recovery process, you're getting stronger. And so mentally and emotionally, the same thing happens when you stress your, yourself mentally and emotionally preferably on purpose, because then you can control the environment a little more, then it's, it's stressful. It's not comfortable, but you come through it on the other side, a little stronger mentally and emotionally than you were before. And you've also built the confidence to say, Hey, I did that. I'm still okay. It didn't kill me. Uh, and that reinforces, you can build this, this, um, this loop in your brain that reinforces the idea that, oh, I can do difficult things and it's uncomfortable, but I'm going to be okay. And not only that, I'm going to be more equipped, better equipped to handle the next thing because of this thing I just did. I, I have a very similar thought pattern to that. And it's, it's almost like building up a memory bank. I've done this, therefore this next thing won't be as challenging. Right. And so I try to include as much I guess as many uncomfortable experiences I can in my, my daily life or in my routine that when the unexpected things come up, I'm like, Oh, I, I already did something like that. So I'm going to be okay. It's not going to be like you said, as bad as it was, or as bad as I think it's going to be. Yeah. hundred percent. I, uh, an exercise I sometimes give, sometimes give my, my coaching clients is to create a, um, a challenge inventory. Right. So go through your life and think about all the challenges that you've had to face and that you've met in one way or another and just list them out and then, and then have that on your phone or on your wall or in your mind. I mean, preferably written because in your mind, you just count them and just use that as a reminder. The next time you're facing something hard and go, wait a minute, I'm the same person. Like, here's my resume, right. Of stuff that I've done. If I'm the person that did that, then I'm the person that can do this thing. And so I, like, I use that all the time and, um, I face things all the time that I'm like, geez, how am I going to, I don't know how to, and even though they're not related at all, 
I go, wait a minute. Like I, I survived a heart lung transplant. I ran a marathon. Like I think this can't be that hard. And, and all of a sudden half of the battle is won because for everything we go through, we're, we're our own biggest obstacle, right? Like no matter what the circumstances are, half of the battle is believing that you can figure it out. Um, Marie Forleo is a, is a coach and um, speaker. And she has this great expression. Everything is figure outable. Yes. I've, I've seen that before. Yeah. And I just think that if you, if you approach every situation in your life with that fundamental belief, like there is a solution. I don't know what it is yet. I may not have the skills to figure it out yet, but it exists. And therefore I can figure it out. I just need to go get the resources or learn the thing or whatever it is like so many things become easier to figure out at that point because you've already decided it can be done some you might disagree but i believe that sometimes the answer is that to get through it it's just time sometimes it's just time just wait it mm -hmm. out like my mom has a sick dog right now and there's a good chance that we'll have to put him down in the next day or two it's going to hurt when, when that decision is made, but time will get us through it. And there'll mm -hmm. be a moment where it's not as painful and it doesn't hurt as much. So sometimes it's not just driving headfirst into a problem until, you know, more pain is felt. Sometimes it's just sitting with it and letting time take care of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and again, learning that, or remembering that discomfort is okay, right? Um, you know, we live in a, again, for most of us anyway, we live in a society and in a culture and in a world where like so much is convenient, so much is easy that we're just inexperienced at dealing with things that are uncomfortable. And so we begin to think like when something's uncomfortable or weird or different, it's painful. It's dangerous. It's scary. It's like all of these, we blow it way out of proportion when it's just different. Like just sit with that. It's okay. If it doesn't feel totally normal, that's all right. If it's uncomfortable, that's okay. If it's not the first choice you would make, that's all right. Um, you know, your guy in the gym, like I'm sure he had a fine workout just because it was in a different space made no difference. Ultimately, he right. just needed that little bit of like, Oh, okay. I'm going to be all right. Yep. And it was fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So question for you, I'd like, I'd like to hear your opinion on this as a society, as a whole, do you think that we are getting more or less resilient? Yeah. Um, so I want to preface this by saying anytime you make blanket statements, there's exceptions, Obviously. <laughs> um, yes. right. Uh, and so there are pieces, places where I see hope. Uh, but I think as a whole, we're, we're, we're becoming less resilient. And I think that's because it's, our life is getting easier <laughs> all the time. And I don't, I don't, if there's another way to do it, great. I don't know of another way to really build internal resilience other than going through surviving and learning from difficult things. I think people were by nature more resilient a hundred years ago because their life was just plain harder. Um, and, and so they were accustomed to dealing with challenges all the time. And, uh, it's not that life today is a breeze by any stretch, but if you think about like, 
if you knew your grandparents, even if you didn't imagine what their life, their day-to-day life was like versus yours. And their life, by the way, was not that difficult either. When you compare it to, you know, what, what's life like for a, I don't know, a villager in a remote place in Africa where they're like hunting for their food and like, it's always perspective, but think about basic everyday kinds of things that you can now do with this thing in your hand in an instant that that took days or weeks or months to do even two generations ago, right? Like people. Yeah. Just sending a met sending a message used to be a horse ride. Yeah. People used to pay all of their bills by going to the bank and (laughs) physically paying all of their bills. And now you have them automatically withdrawn from your bank account and you don't think about it. Like there are countless examples um, you, you know, you, you want, you need something and you click a button and Amazon delivers it to your door the next day. Like there are just so many examples of conveniences. And, and again, I don't think the convenience is bad. It's just that we have to appreciate the fact that it's spoiling us. Right. And so we have to, I think we have to conscientiously counteract that if we're going to be resilient for when we need it. And the other piece of that is because of all of that, we we're also raising children in a way that is depriving them of the ability to build resilient skills because somewhere and not at, there's no defining point in time. It's an evolutionary thing over the course of decades, we've gone from one extreme to the other. Right. So I think there was there was a time, you know, not that long ago when the idea was, you know, the, the way to, to raise a kid was just be super hard on them and, and, you know, um, corporal punishment and all of the rest of that stuff, which I don't think is healthy either. But then we, we let the pendulum swing all the way to the other side where now it's like most of our kids are, um, spoiled rotten, quite honestly, <laughs> including my own. And I'm, and I work at this every day to counteract it, but <laughs> like, and you just realize how much they have. And then we complain because they don't appreciate those things, but that only makes sense because they don't know any different. Right. And so like little, little things that aren't little things. So for example, somewhere along the way, we decided that we shouldn't keep score in, in youth sports because that's going to hurt the kids feelings who lose. I understand the logic there, except that you're going to lose in life. And so isn't it better to, to learn about losing and handling losing when it really doesn't matter? Like it matters to that kid in that moment, but in the grand scheme of life, it doesn't matter at all. Um, teach, teach them how to lose. That's the key, right? And how do they do that? Like, that's the thing. That's This is exactly why we say do hard things intentionally when the stakes are lower, right? When it doesn't really, like, so I do cold showers, for example. It's uncomfortable, but mm. like the risk there is very low. Like, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? I'm going to get cold. Like I can warm back <laughs> up again. It's not like, it's not the end of the world. Right. So, but that builds the resilient muscle so that when, you know, 2020 happens and my business crashes in five days because COVID strikes and the guy who's a professional speaker can't travel or speak to groups of people anymore. I'm able to go, wait a minute. Okay. I've done hard things before. I, everything is figure outable. Let me 
figure this out. And I, the, the gap between, oh no, like the sky is falling to what am I going to do about this was like two days instead of six months or two years or, or give up and go get another job. Right. So we need to teach that to kids as early as possible when the stakes are super low. Um, yeah, there's just, there's, there's countless the schools that have, have now decided that kids don't get grades anymore. Like I asked my, my kids what they're, what they got on a test and it's like one, two, three, four or something. Like there's some other evaluation mechanism that isn't a grade point average or isn't a percentage and the, like whatever the measurement tools are measurement tools, but kids have to understand like, okay, this was wrong. This was right. How can I improve? Let me like, we need ways to evaluate ourselves to know whether we're making progress or not to know where we need to work on things like, um, and to, to your point, to learn how to deal with loss and failure and disappointment and all of those things when the stakes are lower so that when we deal it with it at a grander scale, we're better equipped to deal with it. Everybody, including kids are going to lose at some point and they have to have that skill. If they don't, what happens? What's the result of them not learning how to lose at the extreme end? That's things like school shootings, right? Those kids, they do not know what rejection or failure looks like. So they take it out on everybody else. Like yeah. That's the extreme end. And there's other, you know, less extreme areas where, you know, kids go internal and they lock themselves in their rooms, you know, not, not as detrimental to society, but still detrimental to them. And so, yeah, we, we pride ourselves in our CrossFit kids program here because we challenge those kids to do hard things and to try things that they might fail at. And we tell them that that's okay. It, that's part of learning. And it, it's almost like not just teaching them how to fail, but teaching them how to learn. Like that's, that's whole, the, all yeah. part of the process. Right. Yeah. And I did that when I was a teacher too. It was the same thing. If you were late, there is a consequence to that. And so I was in, in the classroom. If somebody was five minutes late, they had to do five burpees in the hallway before they came into my classroom. That's it. There's no, don't be late. That's it. It's super, super simple. So anyway, mm -hmm. I'd like to hear your, um, what is, what is your, you kind of mentioned it before, but I'd like to know what your, your true definition of resilience is. Yeah. Resilience to me is growing through, evolving through challenges, obstacles, difficulties. So a resilient person doesn't just survive things, although that's a good start. Um, ultimately, they leverage those things to become better, stronger versions of themselves. So uh, you are who you are. I am who I am. Not in spite of, but because of the hardest things you've had to do. Right? Hopefully, if you're doing this intentionally, the difficult things you go through are what build your character, are what shape your perspective or what help you become who you're going to become. And I think that's true. Like, if you think about that, just at a basic level, we don't grow when things are easy. Like no one ever shares how they became the CEO of a company or how they became this, you know, peak performer in any, in any field, the story is never well, like all of these things went really well. And then I got to this 
point. Like there's, there's always this like dramatic story of overcoming some difficult situation or some failure or some, or a series of them that taught them lessons that they lend, that they then used to get to the next step and then to the next step. Um, and so when you have that mindset, then when you're facing challenges, you're not so much afraid of them as you're looking at them going, okay, what am I going to learn here? Yeah. How am I going to grow here? What's this going to teach me? Um, you may not get to the point of enjoying all of that. Maybe you can, um, but at least you have the faith of knowing it's going to be worth it. And I always say to people, cause I get called all the time. Like, you know, my, my job title is motivational speaker. And I put that in quotation marks cause I don't really like the term because I get the call and people say, well, come and motivate our, our team. And I say, well, I can't do that. Um, I can give them ideas and give them strategies, but ultimately they, they motivate themselves. How do you motivate yourself? You have to believe that whatever it is you're doing right now is worthwhile because whatever's on the other side of it is something that you want, whether that's payment at a job, like your salary, or it's um, a skill you're going to acquire in a course, or it's the fitness you're going to acquire in a workout program or, or whatever it is, figure out what you're working to, what's the why behind what you're doing. And Frederick Nietzsche um, said, one of my favorite quotes is he who has a big enough why can endure any how. So the how becomes way less important when you know why you're doing what you're doing. And then you just, you, you get through it knowing that what's on the other side of it is worthwhile. And I say that people don't lose motivation because um, they're, you know, flawed human beings. They lose motivation because they fundamentally don't believe that what they're doing right now, is, what they're going to get at the end of doing what they're doing is worthwhile. How does, how does identity play into that? <sighs> yeah, that's a whole other podcast i'm sure um, i'm sure we could do a part two on that but yeah. it just seems like a lot of people are yeah. are practicing or trying these new habits or skills or practices but it's going against what they believe about themselves and so yeah. then it's kind of this never-ending battle it's like you know one step forward but two steps back kind of deal so how how can we go about changing that identity first before we start tackling the habits or does one come before the other? How's that, yeah. how's that work? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't, uh, the short answer is, I don't know. Um, the longer answer is um, I think, I think they go hand in hand, but you're right that. So when you're able to transform your identity, the work becomes easier, right? So, and by identity, all we simply mean is to say, okay, there's a difference between saying, um, I'm going to cut out all the sugar in my diet because I'm going to, I want to lose some weight versus saying I am somebody who doesn't eat sugar because that's part of who I am. Right. And you have all kinds of things in your life right now that you do and that you don't do because at a fundamental level, that's who you, that's who you are. That's, that's how you identify yourself. People who go to the gym, for example, religiously are, are doing that not just because they're disciplined, but because at a fundamental level, they identify themselves as somebody that takes care of their health and, and, and values exercise. And so it doesn't mean it's not hard to do sometimes, but it's easier because it's just part of who they are. 
and so if you have something that you want to do and that isn't currently part of your identity, then how do you take that on? You set the intention and then you, and then you behave according to that intention. And then over time, I think it becomes part of, part of who you are. I mean, we, we do that subconscious, like, yeah, subconsciously without intention all the time. You've developed habits, good and bad, probably some bad ones. We all have, um, subconsciously because of who we hang around with, because of the work environment we're in, whatever. Um, you just sort of absorb them and take them on. Well, you can do the same thing intentionally by deciding, okay, I'm going to do this thing. And I have to decide that that's part of who I am. Uh, yeah. There's a great book called The Alter Ego Effect, Todd Herman, yep. um, friend of mine. Like just reading that will open your eyes to how powerful this idea is. And then you know, again, like most things, the idea is simple. Implementing it is more challenging, but if you work at it, then you can, you know, people talk about, um, smokers talk about this, right? Like if you want to quit smoking, you can just like white knuckle it, but it's a lot easier to decide I am somebody that doesn't smoke. Like I am somebody who, right. And over time that becomes the new version of you. And then pretty soon you're like, I can't imagine smoking anymore like that's not who i am uh if you don't smoke right now like i cannot even imagine right now going and buying a pack of cigarettes like that would feel so strange and foreign to me (laughs) that i can't even right because that's fundamentally an identity level that's not who i am i've got other bad habits um right so yeah identities is hugely important i feel like our identities are really just the stories that we tell ourselves yes that's it and you can change that story at any point you, you have that, that power and the ability to do so. So our stories, again, are not innate. And, and I think you would agree with that. I'll give you a prime example. Are you a dog person or a cat person? Dog person. Why? How, yeah. You weren't born a dog person, right? Nobody's yeah. just born a dog person or a cat person. But it was the way, like part of your surroundings and and you just one day decided I like dogs more than cats. Could you change that? Probably. Would it be challenging? Also probably. Yeah. But you could very easily, you could change it, but it's, it starts with a decision. You have to decide just like that smoker or even somebody who drinks, you know, yes, there's some addiction qualities to it, but you, you have to decide first before any of those changes are going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. So the change starts with a decision. Um, and then, and I know you would agree with this, and then we have to behave our way to that, to that outcome. Right. So the, the, the failure of a lot of personal development, the secret book, for example, is one, like it's one of my big pet peeves is that we stop at intention. People are like, oh, just set this intent. Like, just decide you're going to do this thing. Just believe you can do this thing. Yeah, absolutely important. Got to do that. But if you stop there, nothing changes, right. right? Like, then you actually have to consistently over time behave consistently with that belief. And then it gets anchored and then it becomes habit and then it becomes part of who you are. And it doesn't mean like, you're. let's say you've never exercised before and you're going to start being somebody who exercises. And so you're going to, you know, sign up to the gym or whatever you're going to do and you're going to show up and chances are very good that you're going to be awesome at that for about a week. And then something's going to come up or you're not going to feel like it, or you're going to be sore that day or whatever. And you're not going to go. And most people, when that happens, 
they let that one day turn into four days and pretty soon this new habit is gone and and to me the 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 difference between people who succeed at these things and the people who don't is not that they never fall down it's that they get back up quicker and they say okay i missed a day like that's okay and come back tomorrow and start again um and they take the long view instead of the short, like catastrophic, I missed one day or I ate that cookie or I had that drink or, or whatever it is. And so therefore it's all for naught. Like, no, get up tomorrow and do it again. So I'm actually going to disagree with you on that. Okay. And I'll tell you why. And, and you might end up agreeing. I don't know. It's not those that get back up quicker. It's those that get back up who have learned the lesson of why they fell off in the first place. And so if you get knocked down, ask yourself why. And if you don't, and you just jump right back up, you're going to get knocked down in the same way again. And so figuring out why you were knocked down, and that could be, well, I was really stressed at work. Okay, well, what can you do about that so that you don't get knocked down from stress at work again? And so it takes a little bit of introspection first. And I don't think jumping right back up and getting right back on it is the answer. I think we have to have a little bit of time, create that space so that you understand why it was that that happened in the first place. Interesting. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. Yeah, I think, I think that's true. I, I think, think it's very situation dependent as well. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. And I think you're right. And, and it's, it, it makes, uh, it will make, the failures or the, or the, yeah, it'll make the failures less frequent. Um, I guess what I'm, what I'm getting at is just that I think too many people are too black and white when it comes to building any new habit. Right. So it's all yep. or nothing. It's I'm, you know, I'm going to quit smoking today and I'm never smoking a cigarette for the rest of my life. And then when they have one, okay well i might as well just go back to smoking a pack a day because i just i just wrecked my streak yep um and and obviously that's ridiculous you've already you've already accomplished a lot by not smoking for however many days you stopped and if you you know so but to your point yes those the times when you fall off the wagon so to speak will be less frequent if you take a look at why why you fell off in the first place right so go back to that smoking if you had that extra cigarette that one time why was it who were who was around you where were you oh i was at this bar and all of my friends were smoking okay well you yeah. might need new friends or different friends or you might not have to go to that bar again right. those are hard they're not easy i'm not saying it's an easy decision but you have to look at the environment and those that are around you can also affect why you fall off, fell off in the first place environments environment is huge for all of this stuff right i mean yep. you are who you surround yourself with there's no question about it absolutely um I want to wrap this up, but I want to find out about what you think about goals. Do you think we should set them? Are they important? What's your view on this here? Yeah. So I think they're hugely important and not for the reason that most people think. So we need, we need, I think psychologically speaking, we just need goals at a fundamental level because you're either growing or you're dying. Like we need progress. Um, we all do. Everybody not everybody. Most people, I think, believe if life were just easier, I would be happy. <laughs> if I could just solve this problem or that problem, it would be it would be great. And the reality is that if you actually had no challenges, no problems ever, you would be so bored so fast you don't even understand. So 
we need goals because they push us and they help us to strive for things. The, the challenge is that it's very easy, and I've done it, to get so caught up in achieving the goal that whether you reach it or not, you set yourself up for, for disappointment. Because if you don't reach it, you're like, oh, well, I'm a failure. And if you do reach it, you have that momentary high that maybe lasts an hour or a day or three. But then you go, okay, now what? Like, I need another goal. Like, I need a new thing. And so instead of it being about getting something, it should be about becoming something. So set goals that help you to become a better version of you. Where do you want to grow? What part of you do you want to improve? Who, what kind of person do you want to be? And what kind of goals would that person have? And, and to me, that's how you use goals in a way that is ultimately more constructive. How, how can goals be detrimental? Um, well, for, if they're too black and white. So I learned a lesson a long time ago. Uh, I was preparing for one of the I was a half marathon or a marathon. Um, I was at the running room. John Stanton, who's the founder of the running room, was speaking to us. And he taught us about setting three goals for our event. And I had never heard of that before. Because I was always told like, okay, well, you're running this event. So let's say it's the marathon. I did the 430 groups. So the goal was to run a marathon in four hours and 30 minutes. And he said, no, 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 no. Like you need three goals. I was like, okay, well, what do you, what's that mean? He said, so number, number one in the middle is your goal, four hours and 30 minutes. That's fine. But he said, you need one below that and one above that. He said, the one above that is because if you get to, you know, two kilometers from the finish line and you've, and you're easily going to reach the goal, you need a reason to push because otherwise you're just going to coast and, and, or maybe collapse because it's just like, you don't have to work anymore. On the other end, if you run a marathon, and this is an analogy for any goal, and you don't get there in the time you want it, but you still did it, you've accomplished something significant. And so you should never feel like a failure at the finish line of an event, no matter what, because you've done it. And so the bottom goal should be finish, right? You've completed it. You've done something. And so again, transfer that to whatever it is, you need to have a bottom line, like, so for example, I like to measure effort over outcome, right? So like, did I show up and do the work? That's a level of success. Now, did I get the result that I wanted? Maybe, maybe I did, maybe I didn't. Um, but if I did the work, I've accomplished something and then hopefully I get the result. And then if I get the result, maybe I can do the 10% stretch above that. Right. I've, I've heard that very similar concept used in business as well. We set good, better, and best goals. Yeah. What would be a good goal? Like, all right, if we get this, that would be pretty good. What's better than that? That's kind of what we're aiming for. And what's like shooting for the stars. Like that's the ultimate best goal possible. So I also like what you mentioned though, about the, the process. And so there's a big difference between outcome goals. What's the outcome of whatever it is I'm yeah. working on and process goals. What are the things I can check off along the way? And when you look back at all those check marks, it's like, holy shit, I accomplished a lot along the way, regardless of what the outcome check mark is, mm -hmm. whether I get it or not, there was still a lot of learning and growth along the way. And that's- Well, you, you would see that in the gym all the time, right? Like I would much rather have somebody show up because they, let's say somebody wants to lose 20 pounds. Look, great. But 
measure how many times a week you show up at the gym. And if you show up and you do the work, you've won. And whether you only lost 10 pounds instead of 20, you still win because you did the work. That's the part you control. The outcomes will come, right? They may not come as fast as you want, but they'll come as long as you're doing the work consistently. I, I find that's a huge problem for anyone setting goals is that they want it now. Sure. It's so immediate. And I think that goes back to what we talked about at the very start and that society, we want the easy fix. We want the easy pill, the easy button, whatever it is. And we want it now. If we want to rent a movie, we don't have to get in our car and drive down to Blockbuster anymore. We just push a button. You don't even have to push a button. Yeah. You just talk to your, your remote and it'll bring it up. for we you. Watch, we watch these home renovation shows where in 30 minutes they transform an entire house. Right. And you're like, okay, I'm going to do my home right now. And it yeah. takes six months and you're like, man, this is taking forever. <laughs> yeah. That's how it works. All right, Mark, this, this conversation, I love this. This, I definitely have to have you back again. Cause this has been a, an awesome conversation. You're easy to talk to. You're easy to listen to. Um, before we end, I always ask my, uh, my guests one last question and it's, if you could give one piece of advice to our listeners about how to become more resilient, what would that piece of advice be? Mm. Oh, wow. That's a really good question. I'm going to say, get really, really clear on why you do what you do. Like write it down, describe it, add, internalize it at a, at a, like heart level, not head level. And when you have that, then you will figure out a way to do whatever you need to do. Because once you know that it's worth it and it matters to you, you will crawl through a broken glass to make it happen. It's absolutely true. And I understand you have a new book coming out. The Resilience Roadmap will be out in the spring. Um, that is my that is currently my goal and my process daily process is doing the editing to, to get that ready in time. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm super excited about it. It's going to be a, a culmination of several years of work and, uh, and I can't wait to share it with the world. So, um, yeah, if you, you find me on, on Instagram, Facebook, wherever at Mark Black speaks and you'll see posts about it, you can join the wait list, all that good stuff. And, uh, I'm excited to, to get that out to the world. I'm excited. Like, it, it, it just jives with everything that we talk about on this podcast. So um, as soon as, well, I'll, I'll be signing up for the, the, um, the wait list of a little notification. So uh, I'll share that link in the show notes. If uh, anybody else that's listening wants to get onto that uh, wait list or notification list so that they can get the updates and find out when it's out, um, man, that'd be awesome. So maybe when it comes out, uh, we'll have you back on the, on the show and we can talk about your book and, all the ideas that people awesome. can put into practice. Cause that's what this is all about. We want people to totally. actually not just listen to this. And as you said, it's not being a motivational speaker. It's about inspiring others to do something. You want them to take the action. And I think what you've talked about throughout this entire podcast is very, very actionable. So I want to thank you uh, very much for that. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Kevin. This has been a lot of fun. Right on. All right. Thanks for listening. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest episodes, be sure to subscribe, and I'll see you next time.